0: Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer, so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. Hey everyone, we've got another StatMed podcast episode for you. So, this comes from the StatMed podcast, which is the platform built by Ryan Orwig called StatMed Learning. It teaches students the how of studying and the how of taking board style tests. If you know the content, but you feel like you're a bad test taker, then you need to check out statmedlearning.com slash ITB. Um, You'll get a 10% discount off uh, the workshop or class on study skills or the boards workshop on how to take the boards that Ryan puts on. And go listen to the StatMed podcast. Hi, Ryan Orwig here. Today, I want to talk about what it means to be a bad test taker at the medical boards level. This means being unable to show what you know on the USMLE, NBMEs, Comlex, NAVLE, shelf exams, in-service exams, and all specialty boards like peds, emergency medicine, etc. Being a bad test taker is absolutely real. And they say stuff like, I do great clinically, but I can't translate what I know to exams. Or they say, I always narrow down to two and then pick the wrong one. Or maybe they say, I miss or distort key clues and I don't trust myself. Or maybe they say something like, I'm always rushing to catch up and making unforced errors. How does a bad test taker survive? Well, usually it comes from overcompensating with robust overknowledge, usually through overstudying. And that is one way to do it, as long as it works. But sometimes, even when you know more than enough, you can still fail because you're a bad test taker and that's terrible. I think this can be prevented and fixed. This has to start with understanding how bad test taking manifests and why it manifests. So let's talk about five key issues at the heart of bad test taking at the medical boards level. I've given a version of this talk for over a decade at various national medical review conferences and you can find a video version on our blog and YouTube channels. So issue number one is problems with working memory. This is at the heart of my theory on why some people are such bad test takers when it comes to medical boards. When I talk about working memory, what I mean is that mental workspace in our heads where we solve problems. Everything must pass through working memory on the way in and on the way out. It is very finite, meaning it lasts for less than a minute and it has a limited capacity that fills up. When it's overloaded new incoming info just overwrites the existing information a simple working memory model says the average person can hold on to seven items before stuff gets overwritten while those on the low end can hold on to maybe just five items and then those on the strong side can hold up to nine nine plus items so how does this relate to boards test taking my theory goes like this i think we can agree the board's questions often demand that we hold on to a ton of information in our working memories as we work and solve them. This is a challenge. I think as board-style questions evolved into the monstrosities that we have today, there was a blind expectation that everyone taking these tests super smart, and therefore, since they're so smart, they can hold a ton of information in their robust working memories. Not just the average seven. But nine, 10, 11 items. See, see, the old conventional wisdom was the higher the IQ, then the higher the working memory. But we now know you can be super smart and super knowledgeable, but only have an average or even below average working memory. Maybe you can hold on to the average seven items. Maybe you can only hold on to five. This can be just the way you're wired. If you have ADHD, then your working memory is certainly lower. Maybe as we age, or as we feel stress, or as we're dealing with other factors, our working memory can be compromised. This likely affects a lot of smart, knowledgeable folks, and it's certainly at play with a lot of bad test takers. But just imagine the difference if you can only hold on to five clues, and the person sitting next to you can hold on to ten. It's just going to make working these questions easier for that person and harder for you. For the test taker with an overloaded working memory they will at times pick answer options that look right but indeed are wrong because they lost sight of a key clue if i say to you what's 10 plus 10 and you say 20 and i say no you're wrong it's 22 you would be outraged and frustrated and you'd say how is that possible how is 10 plus 10 equal 22 and i would say no, no no i said 10 plus 10 plus 2 and you'd say oh well yeah i lost the plus two i, I didn't hear you I, I lost that clue it's impossible to get that equation right without the plus two and that's sort of a cartoonish example of what a lot of bad test takers with working memory overloads feel like so for the test taker with an overloaded working memory they will at times pick answer options that look right but indeed are wrong because they lost sight of that key clue that 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 stinks for example Let's say you work a question about a woman coming into the clinic complaining about shooting pain down her left leg. She talks about how an acute incident happened moving furniture two days ago. But she also gives lengthy details about how this pain and stiffness have been there on and off for a long time, over years. Lots of other clues like decreased sensation in the left foot, straight leg raise at 40 degrees, etc. Indicate a sciatic nerve issue. The question is asking, what is the most appropriate next step in management? So then let's imagine your working memory loses the key clue of acute injury and you're left thinking of it as a chronic issue. Both answer choices are down there. You pick the one that addresses the chronic issue and then you miss it. How does this make you feel? Well, in reality, you knew everything you needed to pick the right answer, yet you still missed it. So you're either going to feel like they tricked you or you can't trust yourself or that you need to study the topic more. The test didn't trick you though. These are not trick questions. Thinking these are trick questions is a trap. If you think that way, you give yourself license to distrust, disregard, or warp any given clue. That will grow even worse test-taking issues. Instead, realize these questions are not trick questions, but tricky questions. Tricky means you are accountable for all the information in front of you in the black and white print but it's easy to lose track of that stuff. Then, as hard as it is, you have to trust yourself. Easier said than done, I know, but all you have is what you know. So, you have to read the questions in a way that limits the burden on working memory and gives you the best chance to consistently get questions right. This can be either a pretty bare bones solution or a more robust one. I'm gonna just lay out the bare bones version here. So issue number two is using a reading sequence That is not right for you. That's an issue. If you are reading questions in a way that is not the best thing for you, that can cause problems. Good test takers who have robust working memories and robust executive functioning skills can maybe read and work questions in ways that are not suited for all people. I think there are lots of quote unquote right ways to work questions, but I don't think all ways are good for all people, especially if you identify as a bad test taker. Some methods that don't work for bad test takers might include the following. Number one, feeling like you have to predict the answer. I don't like this for my students because it's a garbage strategy. I mean, if it works for you, cool. But the reality is, if you can only predict the answer 50% of the time, which is a wildly high percentage on these types of questions, but you feel like the sky is falling, when you can't predict the answer, then don't do it. I mean, good reading is based on predicting and revising, So this can be way more nuanced, but I'm just saying this blind expectation that you should be able to predict the answer on these questions can really lead to problems. So I am saying, if you can't predict the answer, that is absolutely fine. Just work it and see what happens. Another thing I don't personally like is skimming over the answer choices, because when you do that, your eye might catch something familiar and then, You let that shape and corrupt your objectivity as you read the passage, sort of allowing cognitive dissonance to validate the desired answer choice, ignoring clues that don't go with it. And one more I don't like for my people, my bad test takers, is the idea of pitting answer options against each other deathmatch style, like A versus B, A wins, now A versus C which is better, so on and so forth. It's a popular process I don't like. Why? Because it heavily burdens working memory. Again, if any of these work for someone, that is great, good for them. I'm just saying not all processes work for all people. So what process do I like? Here is a very, very simple form of my system. I like reading the last sentence first, which is pretty popular now, but you have to anchor to this thing and build everything around it then I like to read the passage top to bottom one time, finding three key clues, avoiding generic clues, always looking for what we call a pointy edge. And that's a clue that's weird, rare, strange, specific, even a lay person might be able to identify it. Then I read each answer option by itself, one by one, bringing it back to the last sentence, the question being asked, and I ask myself, how viable is this option? And instead of trying to rule every option in, I'm instead trying to rule them out. A little bit wrong is all wrong. It's like, if each option is a small stone, I am putting each stone on a delicate scale and weighing it in the moment, by itself, and making a final determination in that moment regarding its viability. Trying to rule it out, not rule it in. This compartmentalizes each question into a set of many questions, allowing the test taker to truly focus their limited bandwidth on each option. Now we can make this way more complex, way more nuanced, You can see this in the videos on our website and of course within our boards workshop. But that's a fair structure to sort of build around. The third issue is what I call relying on a limited binary mentality. Binary to me means black and white, yes, no, on, off, all or nothing. I think a lot of bad test takers are just coming into the question saying, do I know this or do I not? They think they need to know everything about the question to get it right, which is not true and it's extremely limiting. Good test takers are quite the opposite, I think. Instead, using the parts of what they know to eliminate partially false wrong answer options, narrowing down the field, then picking the safest remaining choice, meaning choosing the answer that best connects with the parts of what they know and the clinical scenario above. As the binary mentality trickles down through the act of reading and navigating the answer options, the bad test taker is unhappy choosing an answer. She only partially knows is right because again, she wants to know for 100%. So let's say she's down to A and B and she knows like 65% about A, like 65% solid, but she won't pick it because she wants to know more about it. So she picks B instead even if she knows way less about B. Or maybe she knows a lot about B in general, but not as it relates to the clinical passage. So she picks B, but it turns out A is right. This binary mentality is one of the main patterns underlying why bad test takers say, I always narrow down to two and pick the wrong one. Whereas the good test taker uses the parts of what they know to steer toward the answer. Hey, 65%, okay, that's good, I'm gonna take it. The bad binary test taker uses the fact that they don't know everything for 100% certainty and they kick away from the right answer. And that really opens up this significant gap that I think underlies a lot of bad test taking. So we're talking about five reasons bad test takers exist at the medical board's level. The fourth issue relates to the way we read and use the last sentence in the passage, which is the question being asked. We call this the prompt because I like renaming stuff. It gives us more ownership and agency within our specialized test-taking process, but it's the last sentence, the question being asked. So what can I say about this last sentence, the prompt? Well, it is the last sentence in the vignette. It explicitly states the precise question being asked, and even though there are no fancy 25-cent medical terms in the prompt, it is hands down the most important sentence in any vignette, and it's the easiest to disregard because of the lack of the medical terminology. It should always be read first, all the time, every time. And it should be refreshed and checked while working the problem. What are issues we see regarding this prompt, this last sentence? Well, number one, some people read it and then forget it within seconds, Dory style, like Dory the Pixar fish. You can't just treat it like a box that needs to be checked. Everything has to be wrapped around and connected back to this, this question. Related is number two, inaccurate retention. I mean, reading the prompt first doesn't guarantee you will accurately recall it by the time you were selecting an answer 30 to 75 seconds later. Your brain will not operate in a vacuum and it will auto-correct and insert some sort of question into the void. But Lord knows if it's the same as the literal question in black and white print. Another thing we see a lot is when the test taker's brain reduces the prompt to its most basic element, which will make it a misread. It can be as simple as taking a short prompt that literally says, what is the best initial treatment? And then reducing it to what is the best treatment, just losing the word initial. The initial treatment and the more broad spectrum treatment will both be down in the answer choices most likely. And if you pick the wrong answer option because you reduced the prompt, guess what? They didn't trick you. That's on you, a test taking mistake but many bad test takers without the right tools and structure and awareness will likely call this a dumb mistake or an impulsive mistake, or they'll think they got tricked. All of this, it does nothing to identify the nature of the miss, meaning they will likely keep making the same mistake on an infinite mix again and again and again. Then another way bad test takers can mess with the prompt is by allowing it to mutate from one thing to something completely different. So for example, the prompt might be the classic generic prompt, which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? This obviously indicates you need to determine the diagnosis in the passage. You need to figure out what has already been done, do the next most appropriate thing and avoid what we call a staircase trap of choosing something you would do later, but not next. But as you work the passage and your working memory gets overloaded and more thoughts are coming in and doubt and confusion, it's possible that the prompt will mutate into something else. Maybe something really specifically strange, or maybe something extremely generic like, which of the following is a possible way to manage this patient's condition? This is of course not a valid question in these sorts of exams, but that won't stop a bad test taker's brain from doing this and then end up making multiple answers look viable which is infuriating and leads to all sorts of other test taking issues like not trusting the test makers. Solution wise, if you are susceptible to this, you have to really train yourself to read the prompt first, break it apart and reconfigure it and connect it to the scenario. Perhaps you have to build in checkpoints where you anchor back to it. Or if you make this kind of mistake, how often is it happening? Map out how you missed it, and how you could have worked it. That is how you grow the essential self-monitoring skills required to be a good test taker so you can catch yourself in the act and grow better test-taking skills. All this makes me think about this podcast I listened to called Revisionist History with Malcolm Gladwell, who talks about social phenomena. He was talking about strong link systems and weak link systems. He said how basketball is a strong link system because the team with the best player wins the most championships. If you have Jordan or LeBron, you're going to win more. But he said soccer is an example of a weak link system. So even though Argentina has Leo Messi, they haven't won a World Cup with him because at the highest level, soccer victory is dictated by the weakest player on the field. So is test taking at the medical board's level a strong link system? or a weak link system. Look, I don't, I don't care about you as a test taker when you are at your best, when you nail this question or that question, when you read the prompt correctly over here, when you narrow and choose the right way over there, that's all well and good. But what dictates success at a test taking level for medical board exams is not you at your best, not you when you're on your strong link, but you at your worst, the weak link, when you are abusing the prompt, when you lose sight of key clues, when you are pushing away from the thing you partially know, when you are making the square peg fit in the round hole. So I think test taking is a weak link system and bad test takers are falling into these issues too often over the course of the exam. Everything we talk about when we talk about bad test taking has to be oriented around fixing you when you are at your worst, at your weakest, and not building around things you sometimes do correctly. One of my students years ago said that my process, when we talk about process for test taking, it has to be thought of like a seatbelt. You always have to be wearing the seatbelt because you don't know when you're going to be in an accident. Likewise, I think at a test taking level, you always have to be using the same process at all times. If you're a bad test taker, this is how you fix it. You're always wearing it, always adhering to the plan, always adhering to the system because you don't know when you're going to misbehave. You don't know when the weak link is going to be exposed. So let's imagine a scenario where I am working with a third year med student who comes to me for help because despite seeming to know a great deal of clinical information and getting rave reviews on his clinical knowledge on rotations, he's in grave danger of being kicked out of school because he has failed three shelf exams horribly, I mean between first and third percentiles, and he's in danger of being kicked out of school. They know something is up, but can't figure out what it is or how to fix it. So he says to me, I always narrow down to two and always pick the wrong one. So here's an example of what he was doing as we sat down to really evaluate him and did a question together. So he reads the prompt first, which says, which of the following is the best initial treatment for this patient? Then he reads the long passage about a young woman coming in for diagnosis and treatment. He then reads the answer choices one by one narrowing down to B, endomethacin, and D, prednisone. Then he says, see, here we are. I always narrow down to two. So I have him talk out his thoughts on the two options because the thought process is what's relevant here, not the actual medical information in the passage. And he says, well, for endomethacin, I'm pretty sure this is first line. So I'm like, oh, that sounds good. Then he says, but, I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, but I also know it's not the best thing, not as effective as D. It's this but where he is detaching from the prompt, moving away from the key phrase in the prompt look that's looking for best initial treatment and starting to answer a different question that's from what's being asked. He's also doing this in part because he doesn't know everything for 100% certainty about endomethacin in this exact scenario, but spoiler, he knows enough. But since he's not 100% sure, he's already pushing away from B, which is indeed the right answer. Then... He thinks about option D, prednisone, and he says, well, you know, I know this is the better drug. He knows a lot about it. He knows it's used for a lot of stuff, but is prednisone first-line treatment question mark? And that's the problem, this question mark. He's like, maybe, eh, I like prednisone better to treat this patient. So he picks it. He doesn't know if this is first line, but since he knows a lot about it in general and he's comfortable with it, he turns the one thing he's unsure of, whether or not it directly connects back to the question being asked about initial treatment, He turns it into a wild card, sort of validating the pick, even though he concretely doesn't know. So he picks prednisone, which is wrong, but based on a sort of answering a different prompt best overall, and based on not really having any idea if this is first line. He chose it over B, which he thought might indeed be first line, but since he wasn't 100% sure, he used that fact, the fact that he wasn't for 100% on it. He used that to kick away from it and then latch onto the wrong thing. It's a perfect example of using his partial knowledge against himself. So I ask him, is this a knowledge miss or a test-taking miss? This is the existential question here. A knowledge miss is when there's no way you could get it right given the medical knowledge you had at your disposal when originally working the question you have to deduce this, is it knowledge or test taking, after missing the question and then reading the answer explanation. This means you either never heard of it, you learned it wrong, or despite having seen or studied it before, you just could not recall the key details in the moment. It's an encoding and retrieval issue that's study-based. If you miss a question like this, this is a fair miss. and has nothing to do with test taking. This is based on how you study, which is a completely separate deal. So that's a knowledge miss on the one side. The other side is the test taking miss. This is the opposite. This is where you realize you knew enough to get it right after the fact. Maybe you just flat out knew everything you needed to know and you messed up. Or maybe despite holes in your knowledge, you could have still used those parts to systematically eliminate wrong answer choices and safely choose the right answer. Test-taking misses might mean you latch onto a single clue and ignored others. You answered the wrong question. You reduced or omitted key clues. You narrow down the two and pick the wrong one, you get blinded by a prediction among others. I often ask people, if you miss 10 questions representatively, how many would be knowledge versus test taking? If it's like eight knowledge and two test taking, I think that's more of a knowledge issue, study-based problem. But a lot of our people, the self-identified bad test takers, they might say stuff like it's five and five. That's a lot. Or maybe four knowledge, six test taking, three knowledge, seven test taking. These are huge deficits and have to be fixed. So anyway, I asked him, was this a knowledge or test-taking miss? Clearly, in my mind, determining this is a test-taking miss. Because if he just connected the parts of what he knew about each option back to the prompt, he would have to have chosen B the correct answer because he thought B was the initial treatment despite being unsure, whereas he had no idea if D was first line. Full stop. Pick B every time. And look, bad test-taking is bad behavior. So changing these behaviors... That's part of the trick. Our board's workshop covers all of this, but for our purposes here, it has to start with awareness. So I ask him and he says, ah, this is definitely a knowledge miss. What? Because if I just knew for sure endomethacin was first line, I would have gotten it right. Ugh. Which is exactly the opposite of my point. This underscored for me that he was a truly binary test taker. He was just so used to knowing everything. Smart guy. From undergrad, even through the first two years of med school, he just muscled through everything. He just literally knew it all. But when he got to clinicals, he did not know everything and just didn't know how to then operate and use the parts of what he knows. Hence, he was a terrible test taker who did not know how to use the parts of what he knows to consistently answer questions. And that's all okay. This was my first session with him. He learned eventually how to partition his process, how to weigh each option independently and fairly, how to stop being so binary and how to start using the parts of what he knew. He quickly learned that this was indeed a test taking miss and he had to learn how to use the parts of what he knew to rule out partially false, partially wrong options and how to steer into the parts of what he did know. This isn't the only type of pattern you'll see. This is just one of them. And it's an example of how you can really learn from analyzing the steps in a sequence and seeing where people sort of drive off the road on it. So he wanted what everyone wants, an effective self-monitoring system to regulate him as he works questions in real time. He didn't have this. He had to grow it via structured self-reflection. That's a, these are opposite ends of the same circuit. Self-reflection is what you do when you look back and study the game film like an athlete. And that grows what's called self-monitoring, the ability to regulate yourself in the run of play. So this took some work. Some sweat equity, some tears, maybe, because this is behavior change. But he did it. He went back, crushed his shelves, and now he's a doctor. His bad testing habits, I think, will always be there. So he has to lean on methodology to pull him through. And that's a really fair modification to make. And now our fifth and final issue I'll talk about is something a little different. It's called twisting. And this is when you take the square peg and make it fit in the round hole because you can make anything fit if you hit it hard enough, but that's not always right. Twisting is the opposite of inferring. Inferring is good. It's a necessary part of effective, critical reading and test-taking. Inferring is when we draw a conclusion from a clue that everyone can be expected to draw. Twisting, on the other hand, is bad. This is when the test-taker draws conclusions from a clue that not everyone can draw, likely by adding or distorting the clues as presented, often by using connector phrases like what if or but maybe. So for example, in a most appropriate next step in diagnosis question about scabies, test takers can twist a clue that says a group of friends went on a trip a few weeks ago and when they came back, the patient and one of his friends have developed a similar rash. Then it goes on to describe a very scabies like rash. So how can somebody twist that seemingly innocent clue? One way is they twist trip and turn it into a camping trip which makes wrong diagnoses like poison ivy seem viable, even though the description of the rash doesn't fit. This is a twist because not all trips are camping trips. So what is the proper inference from a clue like this? Something we can all conclude from it. Well, if multiple people go on a trip and multiple people come back with the same symptoms, like this rash, then we can all agree. What they have is something contagious, something transmittable, and that's it. Another example of a twist may go like this. With a most likely diagnosis question, let's say one of the findings up in the passage is it is determined the patient acquired this condition from contaminated water. This can be this condition being the diagnosis we're trying to figure out. Let's imagine the answer is something like I don't know uh, giardiasis, but one of the wrong answer options is West Nile virus. Now let's say the test taker sees West Nile down there, and let's say they let them that sway them and corrupt the reading of the vignette. So when he sees acquired from contaminated water, he says, well, I know West Nile comes from mosquitoes and mosquitoes lay eggs in water. So if you are around a lot of standing water, you can get West Nile. So bang, clicks it, you know, picks it and it's wrong. It's a twist. The twist is making mosquitoes connect to the water as the vector. The proper inference would be this. Mosquitoes lay eggs in water, but you get West Nile from mosquitoes. So this can't be right. It's partially false. This is saying that you get whatever this issue is from the water itself from ingesting it in this question. So twists can happen because you add what if or they can also happen when you queue up a lot of information about a topic like West West Nile. And that floods the working memory and you lose sight of the scenario or the question being asked. And like I said, it can also come from just the idea of a prediction trap. You see West Nile down there in the options and then you shape the reading to fit the desired diagnosis, sometimes adding little bits like the mosquitoes that this person did here. We have to grow these self-monitoring skills and use what I call language alerts to warn us when we start to twist. Like when we say, well, what if it was a camping trip or maybe mosquitoes are laying eggs in water? It requires that self-reflection we talked about earlier and it takes lots of iterating. So if you're struggling with your test taking, know that you're not alone. I hope this helps illuminate how and why this happens. Learning to get control of it has to start with this sort of fundamental awareness. And if you want to talk through your own experience, please don't hesitate to reach out. You can reach us via our website at StatMedLearning.com, there's a contact form there, and I personally monitor and respond to all the messages that come in. You can also find us on YouTube and various social media channels. If you're interested in taking the StatMed Study Skills class or the board's workshop to fix bad test taking, we're offering a 10% discount exclusively for listeners of this podcast. To claim your discount, just go to statmedlearning.com ITB, all lowercase. That's statmedlearning.com ITB, as in inside the boards. Thanks for listening.